Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In Jane Wagner's one-woman show, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, Lily Tomlin starred as Trudy, an elderly woman who walks the avenues of Manhattan carrying all her worldly goods in a couple of plastic grocery bags and carrying on a loud dialogue with an invisible group of visitors from out of space whom she calls her space chums. As their guide and interpreter of the strange ways of the human species and the vagaries of human culture, Trudy is constantly holding up a can of Campbell's soup in one hand and the famous Andy Warhol painting of a can of Campbell's soup in the other hand, trying to convey to the extraterrestrials the difference between soup and art. This is soup, she keeps repeating. This is art. Soup, art. They fail to grasp the difference. The other thing Trudy wants them to understand is the enigma of human emotional response. How would you explain goosebumps? More importantly, how would you bring someone to experience that curious combination of awe and dreadful wonder that causes our hair to stand on end? Trudy decides to take her space chums to the theater for their final evening on Earth, hoping for goosebumps. In the very last scene, Trudy stands alone on the stage. Her friends have left behind a note, which she reads aloud. Dear Trudy, thanks for making our stay here so jam-packed and fun-filled. What we take with us into space that we cherish the most is the goosebump experience. Did I tell you what happened at the play, says Trudy? We're in the back of the theater, standing there in the dark. All of a sudden, I feel one of them tug at my sleeve, whispers, Trudy, look. I say, yeah, goosebumps. You definitely got goosebumps. You really like the play that much? They said it wasn't the play that gave them goosebumps. It was the audience. I forgot to tell them to watch the play. They'd been watching the audience. Yeah, to see a group of strangers sitting together in the dark, laughing and crying about the same things, that just knocked them out. They said, Trudy, the play was soup. The audience, art. 
I like to think of him out there in the dark, Trudy says, watching us. Sometimes we'll do something and they'll laugh. Sometimes we'll do something and they'll cry. And maybe one day we'll do something so magnificent, everyone in the universe will get goosebumps. Awe is powerful. And awe is so mysterious. How do we express the feeling of seeing a shooting star the amazement of watching a toddler take their first steps, that collective effervescence of singing along at a concert with a huge crowd of people who also know every word. Up until 15 years ago, scientists were studying emotions essential to human survival, like fear and disgust but they were basically uninterested in awe. They knew that throughout the span of evolution, we've met most of our basic needs, not individually, but socially. We've survived thanks to our capacity to cooperate, form communities, and create culture that strengthens our sense of shared identities. That scientific aha came with the realization that the provenance of so much that is human, music, art, religion, science, politics, bind us together with awe. They finally took notice. Awe is still very much an elusive emotion, but we do know now that it transforms our bodies and our brains. It is awe that cools our immune system's inflammation response, sharpens our reasoning, and orients us toward bigger ideas and new insights. Awe, that feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends our understanding. Awe is a transformational, vital force in our lives. Dacher Keltner, a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and the director of the Greater Good Science Center, just published his book, Awe. He and Professor Yang Bai gathered stories of awe from people in 26 countries. And this is hilarious. He says, we cast our net broadly because of the scientific concern about weird. Weird samples. That's weird spelled out all in caps. Which is to say those comprise disproportionately of people who are, here comes the acronym, Western, educated, individualist, rich, and democratic. Weird. They received 2,600 narratives by speakers of 20 languages. And what was the largest common denominator that led people around the world to feel awe? Do you want to guess? Nature? Listening to music? No. What leads us most often to feel awe is other people's courage kindness, strength, 
or overcoming. After an utterly ill-spent youth, Lewis Scott was sentenced to 229 years to life in jail. Incongruously, it saved his life. Somehow, once he was on the inside, he was transformed by an idea, a way that he could bring peace to the confines of prison and stir an awareness of those of us on the outside about the kindness and courage of those on the inside. He has produced award-winning shows for California's Saint Quint San Quentin State Prison Radio on the illusions and costs of gang loyalty, on living and dying with hepatitis C, and on the stigma of AIDS in prison. Lewis Scott is the only prisoner to have been elected to the Society of Professional Journalists and he's become a facilitator of restorative justice, a discipline grounded in principles of nonviolence. Restorative justice is a cultural archive of moral beauty with a long past, founded on the conviction that all people, including those who have murdered and those who have lost loved ones and are consumed by thoughts of revenge, can overcome and find peace. It centers on perpetrators recognizing the harm they have caused, taking responsibility for their actions, making amends, and expressing remorse. A central practice of restorative justice is the talking circle in which individuals take turns sharing while others simply listen. One day when Dacker Keltner was visiting San Quentin, one of the people to speak in the circle was former white supremacist Todd Ashker, who had lived for 28 years in solitary confinement at a maximum security prison. From his cell, talking into a vent, Todd Ashker had begun to speak to leaders of Mexican-American and black gangs in cells nearby. He called for a truce among rival gangs. He pressed small notes into the handle of the broom he used to clean parts of the prison. The notes would make their, hands, their way into the hands of other prisoners who in turn passed them on. This vast, interconnected web of resistance. And then he led a hunger strike protesting that solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment and therefore a violation of the Eighth Amendment. He was joined by more than 29,000 prisoners, the largest hunger strike in United States history. They won. More than 2,000 prisoners statewide were immediately moved out of solitary ending that inhumane treatment. When everyone in the talking circle had spoken, the men in blue rose to recite the principles of restorative justice. A silence fell over the room, a quiet, powerful moment of shared attention. And then they recited together, I believe 
that violence is not a solution to any problem. I believe that every person is endowed with a sacred dignity. I believe that every person is capable of changing, healing, and being restored. I pledge to respect the dignity of every person. I pledge to overcome violence with love and compassion. I pledge to support anyone affected by crime and accompany them on their healing journey. I pledge to be an instrument of restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness. At that last word, forgiveness, the men turn to one another to shake hands, clasp hands, clasp arms, chuckle softly, and make eye contact. Dacher Keltner felt awe at the resilience of the human spirit. While other people's courage, kindness, strength, or overcoming most often lead people to feel awe, nature and music are two other reliable sources. The great conservationist Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring, is credited with advancing the global environmental movement. Rachel Carson knew the importance of awe. She wrote a remarkable essay called Helping Your Child to Wonder, which appeared between recipes for mayonnaise and potato salad and ads for best foods in Women's Home Companion. When her sister died, the unmarried and child-free scientist suddenly found herself with a 20-month-old toddler. Her essay opens with her and young Roger wandering down to the Atlantic Ocean one wild stormy night. Getting soaked, they laugh at the frothy waves, she writes, finding a spine-tingling response to the vast roaring ocean and the wild night around us. Later, on a rain-drenched walk in the Maine woods, Roger delights in the spongy texture of the lichen on rocks, getting down on chubby knees to feel it and running from one patch to another, she says, with squeals of pleasure. And so Rachel Carson made the case for an awe-based approach to child-rearing, imbuing a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life as an unfailing antidote against the boredom and disenchantments of later years, the sterile preoccupation of things that are artificial, the alienation from the sources of our strength. While researching his book, Dacher Keltner had the extraordinary opportunity to ask American film director Steven Spielberg, what was awe like for you as a child? Without missing a beat, Steven Spielberg recalled that one night his dad gathered him up and hustled him into the car. 
They went to a field and lay on their backs on blankets. A meteor shower washed over the sky. Stephen recalls the light, the profusion of stars, how vast the night sky was, and his experiments with seeing directly or out of the corner of his eye fleeting patterns of stellar awe. It was this wonder of life, he said, that he hoped to give to others in E.T. And then he said this, we are all equal in awe. Lao Tzu wrote, from wonder into wonder, existence opens. In nature, awe is as close as a stroll or a roll. However you ambulate, it's been proven that moving through space at the pace of a saunter can inspire a consciousness that's especially receptive to awe. The idea is to try to see the world with fresh eyes, imagining you're seeing everything for the first time. British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins wrote, there is an anesthetic of familiarity, a sedative of ordinariness that dulls the senses and hides the wonder of existence. What is the best way of countering the sluggish habituation brought on by our gradual crawl from babyhood? We can recapture that sense of having just tumbled out to life on a new world by looking at our own world in unfamiliar ways. The instructions for an awe walk are to focus way out Look up at the sky and feel its vastness. And weigh in. Look at the details of ice crystals forming on a plate glass window. Or if you're in a warmer climate, at the mighty little weed pushing its way up through a crack in the sidewalk. You can take an awe walk anywhere. And if you can't keep visiting new places, just keep looking for new features in a familiar place. Henry David Thoreau, father of the modern day staycation, wrote of the six square miles he called home, I have traveled a great deal in Concord. In music, awe may be in the listening or in the making of it. I love these two stories. Diana Gameros grew up in a big, boisterous musical family in Juarez, Mexico. Her earliest memories are of her uncles singing Mexican folk songs of love and revolution in deep, full-chested timbers. At 13, she came to the United States to study piano and recording technology in Michigan. She became an accomplished musician and lived here undocumented for 16 years. She longed for home. When she was finally given a green card, Diana Gameros returned to Mexico to tour in her country. This is how she describes the awe of that experience captured in the documentary, Dear Homeland. I can feel it now, she says. Estoy aquí. I am here. 
I am finally here. All I had to do was deeply breathe, deeply feel, and listen. Really listen and see, truly see. I recognize these voices. They speak my mother tongue. I recognize these colors. I was brought up by these colors. I recognize myself in this place and these sounds, those faces, that flag. Y ahora soy una con ellos. And now I am one with them. I am here in my dear, dear homeland, Mexico. Y me siento inmensamente feliz. And I feel immensely happy. Yumi Kendall is an award-winning cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. This is her description of grieving her grandfather, also a musician, and the awe she experienced playing Mozart's Requiem the week after he died. She says, this was grandfather's piece, the Requiem. When we started playing the sixth movement, the Confutatis, which Mozart is said to have composed on his deathbed, all the tears I never shed when grandfather died came pouring out. The angry, aggressive 30-second notes from the 40 of us playing strings in unison with sharp accents are like punches. And suddenly the heavens opened up and all the light shone through, like sun rays beaming through in sound, bright white, almost blinding light. Angels singing, Grandfather was there with me, shining on us. And then the re-entrance of the fortissimo accents and missed opportunities and grief brought a new surge of anger. I became momentarily aware that I was in performance and then let it go. It's a safe place on stage. I felt the anger. I felt it subside. By the time we ended, even with my tears, I felt glowing, calm, deep sadness and peace. I felt like grandfather heard me. It was awesome. I want to close where we began with Jane Wagner's The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. In the early 90s, my friend John McDar went to see the show when it was on Broadway. He was seated between a friend and a stranger. That surprisingly, in typical Northeast fashion, he and the stranger had not greeted one another. The play is almost over. I like to think of them out there in the dark watching us, says Lily Tomlin's character, Trudy, of her space chums. Sometimes we'll do something and they'll laugh. Sometimes we'll do something and they'll cry. And maybe one day, we'll do something so magnificent, everyone in the universe will get goosebumps. And at just that moment, Trudy turns around to face the back of the bare gray stage wall and throws her arms wide open. Suddenly, the wall becomes an inky black sky, sparkling 
thousands of stars. The audience surged to its feet. John McDar found himself both laughing and crying. And then he says, for the first time that evening, I became aware of the stranger to my left who was also on his feet, engulfed in the same emotion. And spontaneously, we threw our arms around each other and hugged. Beloved spiritual companions, we are all equal in awe. From wonder into wonder, existence opens. I wish for you goosebumps. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. From Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, someday after mastering winds, waves, tides, gravity, we shall harness the energies of love. And then for the second time in the history of the world, we will discover fire. I wish for you goosebumps. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.